welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Well, friends, uh, it is my pleasure to invite our good friend Dave Berge to speak and, and teach us from the Word. And if you don't know Dave, uh, he is a fellow Covenant Church planter. He's planted a church in South Minneapolis called City of Lakes. Micah and I have visited uh, definitely a kindred spirit, uh, not only with personally, but Awaken and City of Lakes. And uh, we're just so fortunate to have you, Dave. And if it's okay, I'd love to pray for you uh, kind of as you... That would be awesome. Um, and why don't we all, let's all stand and pray for Dave. God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to um, hear from you. And we trust that the things that you have been uh, putting in place and maybe torquing in, in Dave's heart into a position that, that can hear from you, God, we are expectant, we anticipate that your spirit is present. And God, would you give us an openness would you peel back the layers of our heart that uh, have become deaf or numb or um, unable to hear what you want to say today? God, thank you for Dave. Thank you for his wife, Amy, and their kids. Thank you for City of Lakes. Would you bless, would you bless, would you bless their community as they are um, just, we're just out of the gate? And so, God, we uh, thank you for this time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, this is my actually uh, second time preaching at Awaken. Uh, the first time was, I think, in October. It was during the all-church retreat. Um, so most of you were probably not here, which kudos to you. You either went to the retreat or you said, everyone else is on retreat, so I'm not going to church this Sunday. But it is just um, a thrill to be here, and, and I have such an affinity for um, you all and your mission and your vision. And you guys are like the older brother who City of Lakes you know, aspires to be like. And so when Micah asked me to preach, I was just tickled at the proposition to do so and to continue in your um, sermon series to kind of set the table for Easter, which is, of course, you know, the big one every single year. And so um, it's exciting. So I'm going to set the table a little bit. And so that means going to 2 Corinthians uh, 4 and, and verses 7 through 9. And so it'll be up on the screen as I read. And so here Paul writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. One of my favorite movies um, growing up was one that you might be familiar with. Um, it was called The Goonies. And if you are a child of the 80s at all, uh, you probably remember the Goonies. There's actually talk now that they're going to make a sequel. Uh, Sean Astin, um, Samwise Gamgee, uh, if, if you don't know his actor name, he said that that is a thousand percent possibility that they're going to be doing a sequel to the Goonies. And I love this movie for a lot of reasons. And one of them was that the Sean Astin character, if you remember, he had asthma. And so he would, when he would get sort of verklempt, he would, he would have to take his inhaler. And growing up as a kid, I had asthma. And there weren't a lot of people featured um, in the media who had asthma. Uh, and he was probably our most prominent representative of the asthmatic community. And so this was really exciting. And I was probably like five years old when I saw uh, The Goonies for the first time. And there was a one point where I, I had to kind of turn away from the screen. And that's when they showed uh, the character Sloth, who absolutely 
terrified me. But he won me over, you know, when he goes, hey, you guys. Like, and you're just like, Sloth is not scary. He's actually one of the good guys. And so one of the coolest parts about the Goonies is that it's all about this treasure hunt, right? They're going to destroy their neighborhood unless they can come up with the money to save it. And so these kids discover this like underground lair. And so they're off to find the treasure of one-eyed Willie. And as a kid, there's nothing cooler than treasure hunts because it's not just about finding all of this money so that your wildest dreams can come true. It's also about solving a mystery. And at the end, you find out that it's actually unraveling the mystery that was the treasure. And that sounds lame, kind of like, you know, the journey is the destination. Uh, But it's true. And so that's how buried treasure works, that that, that, the, the treasure that you discover is the journey of discovering the treasure. And so this morning, I am going to ask you to join me on a treasure hunt. Who's excited? Yeah, yeah. And so treasure is what we're after. And treasure is what Paul says to the Corinthians that they have or they've found. Maybe a better way to say it is that through the working of the Holy Spirit, this treasure has found them. But what is the treasure? One of the fascinating things that I learned in, in, in studying for this passage is the Greek word for treasure. And it's one that I think when we see it etymologically, we'll all be like, oh, I've, I've heard that word before. I've seen it before. And so the word for treasure in Greek is thesaurus, which sounds a lot like thesaurus. Um, and so that's the uh, uh, English word um, for the thing that I look at when I've been using the same word too many times, and so I need a new word for some variety and to sound a little bit smarter. And, and so that's what a thesaurus is. So how do we get from the Greek thesaurus to the English word treasure? And one of the interesting things in, in, in studying the etymology of the word thesaurus is that it, it, it meant something different until the mid-1800s when uh, Rouget or Rogget, uh, as I like to say, uh, his the thesaurus, the famous thesaurus that's still in wide circulation, um, until that time, it had a much broader meaning. And so if you were to talk about a thesaurus, it, it basically meant you were talking about an encyclopedia or a dictionary or something like that. And so I think that this is actually much closer to what the word originally meant in Greek than the limited way that we use the word now. And so in ancient uh, Greek, the word thesaurus referred to a storehouse or a chest where treasure was kept. And so eventually its meaning was transferred to the contents uh, of that chest. And so it was the treasure that was stored in those places. So you can think of like Aladdin and the cave of wonders um, that he discovers. And you get the idea. That's what a a thesaurus was. That's what a, a, a treasure chest was. And so the reason that later in English it could be used to denote an encyclopedia is because that was the place where all of the treasures of human knowledge and understanding were supposed to be held. And so I think that's what Paul is getting at when he talks about the treasure that the Corinthians have. The treasure that they have is the knowledge of God they have received through the Spirit that has pointed them to Jesus as Messiah and has awakened faith within them. This treasure is that they now understand that Jesus is the one to whom the scriptures of the Old Testament were pointing, that that he is the climax of God's work with his people, and that Jesus himself is the dawning of a new day. And so this message was a treasure because it was knowledge that, that hadn't been given 
to everyone. It, it wasn't obvious. Paul says immediately before this that, that it's been kind of hidden with a veil. And in fact, to other people, this message about Jesus wasn't treasure, but it was trash. It was foolishness to be discarded, or it was so dangerous that it actively needed to be suppressed. We need only remember that that's how Paul himself first heard this so-called good news about Jesus when he was a persecutor of the church. But now the Corinthians have, have received the knowledge of God that comes through Jesus, and, and they have believed, and now they know something, and someone that is of infinite value, because it's through him that they can experience communion with the creator of the universe, that they can receive forgiveness and, and have the spirit-empowered, abundant life. And so discovering the infinite knowledge and love of God in and through Jesus, that is their treasure. Knowledge that would fill innumerable encyclopedias. Priceless love that would overflow multitudinous, and I use a thesaurus to look up that word for a lot, multitudinous caves of wonder. And so that's the treasure that they have received, this knowledge of who Jesus is, what he's done, and, and how he is going to work through them to transform the world. But the question when you get treasure is, what are you going to do with it? Where are you going to store it? And so the question with this treasure that the Corinthians has received is, where is God going to store the treasure that he has deposited into the world in Jesus? And so when we have something valuable, you know, where do we store it? A safe, right? That is a very common place to store stuff. A safety deposit box is another place that you put valuable stuff. If you're Scrooge McDuck, you store your treasure in an amazing vault where you can swim in your money, which as a child was just like the most amazing image possible. But God has chosen to deposit this treasure into jars of clay. Not the band, I'm not going to sing, if I can't swim after 40 days in my mind. Okay, jars of clay. God has deposited this treasure into earthenware pots. And those pots represent us. We are the jars of clay. And so clay pottery was the sort of disposable dishware of its day. It was the plastic cups and the paper plates and the plastic silverware. And so people used it for any and everything. And Corinth was also known for making these clay lamps, uh, these clay kind of lampshades that you could put a, a light in and walk around the city at night. And so it was this very thin clay with holes in it so the light could get out. And the thing is that it's thin, it's fragile, it's easily breakable, but because it's so cheap, it's disposable. It wasn't a big deal if you broke one. There's this famous quote from uh, Marshall McLuhan. It's probably become, you know, kind of cliche at this point, but he was the godfather of communication studies. And so he famously remarked, I'm sure you've heard it, the medium is the message. And so what does this mean? And for me, I take it to mean that the content of a given message is inextricably bound to the medium through which it is communicated. So if I tell you that I love you and I give you flowers, I am putting the content of love into the medium of flowers, not just my word. If I give you dead flowers, my intention is to deposit the meaning love into those flowers, but what's being communicated 
through that medium is that I'm kind of a jerk. And so that's kind of what I think as the example of the medium is the message, that the, the, the means through which we communicate as mu- communicates as much as the content of the words or message themselves. And so God has given the world this invaluable gift, this treasure in Jesus Christ. And he has entrusted the message about Jesus to people like the Corinthians, who, to put it nicely, were nothing special. They were clay jars. And so the question is, why would God do that? Why would he give this treasure to people like them, and let's be honest, to people like us? And one of my favorite um, theologians and biblical scholars and commentators uh, is this fellow named N.T. Wright. Um, He's the former bishop of Durham, England, and and he's a professor of New Testament at St. Andrews uh, uh, University in Scotland. And so he tells this story when he's commenting on this passage about the, the British ambassador to the United States named Sir Oliver Franks. And so Sir Oliver um, was the ambassador immediately following World War II, so just at the beginning of the Cold War and into the early Cold War years. And so one of Franks's job was to communicate sensitive information back to the UK. And the problem was, you know, he couldn't use the telephone to do this because his telephone was tapped. And so when he had important uh, diplomatic dispatches that he needed to send to England, he would type them up and he would put them in in this briefcase called a diplomatic bag. And they would take the next transcontinental flight to be opened back in Great Britain. But the problem with that was that everyone knew that what was inside that bag was important. That if you could just get your hands on that bag, you could get your hands on the secret of the crown. And so when Franks had to send a message that was top, top secret, something of the highest sensitivity and confidentiality, do you know how he would send it? He would take an envelope, put some postage on it, put the sensitive information in it, and send it via international mail, like any other letter. Because no one would think that anyone would be so foolish as to send the most secret information that they had in something so common, so ordinary. The envelope was plain. The contents were anything but. And the same is true of the treasure of the gospel, right? And we whom God has chosen to be the bearers of that message. Paul is saying there can be no confusion between the two. We are clay jars because what's important isn't drawing attention to ourselves, but pointing beyond ourselves to Jesus. Far too often, it's easy to forget that, that the gospel doesn't revolve around us, that God didn't send Jesus in order to make us happier, more comfortable, and slightly more moral versions of ourselves rubbish any such notion. See, God has deposited the treasure of the gospel in us in order to communicate something about the message itself. Jesus takes what is ordinary, common, worn out, and even broken, and he makes it of surpassing value. God takes what is disposable and makes it indispensable. That God places his treasure in clay jars doesn't mean that God's glory is seen in spite of our brokenness. 
but it's through our very brokenness that the glory of God is made most manifest. One of the things that happens when um, you're seeking to become a church planter, and, and Micah went through this, and now he's actually on the other end of uh, kind of leading these, these training sessions, and that's how I got to know him, is, is we do something called an assessment center. And so when you go through an assessment center as a church planner, it's really the covenant's opportunity to put, th- put you through the paces, to, to ask you about your life, about your ministry experience, about the gifts and the call that you have, to see if this particular calling, this particular vocation of planting a new congregation is a good fit for you with your skills, with your call, with your giftedness at this time in your life. And so you're asked to answer a lot of questions about yourself. I mean, the covenant wants to know because they're putting not just their name, but their resources behind it. And so there was one question um, that they asked uh, as a part of this that was particularly challenging for me to answer. And the question was this, give one example over the past year where God spoke to you about your brokenness and God used that brokenness to minister to someone. That was a really hard question because I would rather not focus on my brokenness. Thank you very much. And, and especially when I'm seeking to be affirmed as a church planner, I'm trying to put my best foot forward and, and tell you about how awesome I am and, and all the gifts God has given me and how he's given me this call and this vision and, and how I'm going to do all of these great things with these people um, to, to make an impact for God and his kingdom. I want to answer those questions not talk about my brokenness. So that was hard because, because to talk about that feels like you're kind of stripping away the veneer a little bit. And, and so the brokenness, the way I answer this question is, is the brokenness that I bring to the table that, that was just raised up to me, that God revealed to me, which wasn't a surprise, but something that's simmering beneath the surface is that my sense of worthiness in God's eyes, is derived from my sense of how well I am performing in the eyes of other people. And so right here, right now, my brokenness is simmering just beneath the surface. My sense of of how worthy I am is tied to how well I feel like I've connected with you all, how well my jokes have gone over, how smart and and insightful you think I am. And, And so that's going to dictate my sense of of how I feel about who I am and how I feel that God feels about me. And friends, that's messed up. That's wrong. And and some days are better and some days are worse. And and it's an insecurity that that plays into defensiveness because when you base your sense of self-worth on performance, when you receive criticism, it's not just about something you've done, it's about who you are. And so criticism takes on these kind of ontological ramifications, calling into question your very sense of self. That's tough. And so God revealed that brokenness to me, but how has he used that to minister to someone else? And so the example that I gave in my context was I was an um, uh, associate pastor for student ministry for four years at a church in Southern California. And there was one student in particular um, who was just this intellectual giant. He was incredibly smart, but he was kind of an emotional midget. Uh, and he was actually a large kid as well. So it, it was like he was this large young man, but this tiny child 
inside. And so often he, he felt awkward about being sort of this, this big, um, kind of uncoordinated kid who wasn't athletic and wasn't necessarily the most popular, kind of the butt of some jokes. And so he used his intelligence as this kind of tool to build himself up, but also to tear other people down in, in ways that were sometimes arrogant and hurtful. And so I saw myself in his insecurities. I, I wasn't anywhere near as smart as him. But I saw that it was from his performance in school that he derived his sense of self and worthiness, and that he didn't feel like he was lovable just because of who he was. And so, I mean, honestly, I don't feel like I did, you know, that much to him, other than to, you know, call him out a couple of times for, for using his, his smarts as a weapon, and to just walk with him, and be there for him, and meet with him, and have coffee for him, and be in relationship, and just affirm that I cared about him. Not because he was getting A's on all his tests or because he was getting into great colleges, but just because he was a cool kid who I could relate to. And I understood what it felt like to feel unworthy. And so that was my brokenness. And, and I walked with him just in that. And, and I saw him grow in, in grace. And I saw him start using his smarts less as a weapon, but just as something to help other people, to tutor his peers who were struggling in school. And as he felt more secure, he bragged less. And I saw this amazing transformation over the course of two years. And it was beautiful. Someone growing up, not just getting more mature, but, but maturing in their faith. And so that we have this treasure in clay jars means that God doesn't want us to hide from our junk. He wants to work through it. And that's why Paul can say that despite all of the thoroughly awful circumstances that he's been through, whether it's been being beaten to an inch of his life or, or the very emotionally wrenching and draining fight that he has had with this very Corinthian church receiving the letter, through all of those things, Paul says that, that there has been pain, but God has been at work all along. I think that's what Paul is getting at when, when he writes, we are hard-pressed on every side. And we are hard-pressed, brothers and sisters. There is pressure to conform to the norm coming from every angle, from our families and our jobs and our culture and our, and our church. But most of the time, that pressure is coming from ourselves. And so we are pressed on every side. And sometimes it feels like we are going to suffocate. But this treasure says that we are not crushed. We are perplexed, Paul writes, meaning we, we can't make sense of things sometimes. And which one of us, if we are honest, hasn't looked at the world sometimes and gone, where is God in this? Where is God in a world that is filled with Syrias and Rwandas and Afghanistans and Guantanamo Bays? And closer to home, where is God when we've lost our jobs or our homes or our spouses or, or people who we love? Where's God when we just feel lost? We're perplexed. We don't get it. It doesn't make sense how a good and powerful God could be at work at any of this. But when we look at Jesus, when we, we look at this treasure, we see the cross, and we see that God hasn't abandoned us in this mess, but that God loves this mess so much that he has fully identified with it by entering into it. 
Not to get rid of it, but to make it new by taking the weight of what perplexes us upon himself. And then somehow we know that it all makes sense, even if it isn't logical. And that's why Paul says we are not given over to despair, at least not forever. And Paul says we are persecuted. And the great irony of this is that Paul, the great persecutor of the church, is himself experiencing persecution. And if we need any more evidence that God can work in and through our brokenness, we need look no further than Paul. Paul sought to destroy the church, but God broke him in order to build up his people. God does not abandon his people, and Paul, the persecuted ex-persecutor, is living proof of that. And lastly, Paul says, we are struck down. But the good news is that we are not destroyed, even though, as jars of clay, we are exceedingly fragile. We are not destroyed because the treasure that we have is the good news that the powers of darkness did their worst to Christ. They struck him to the ground and crowned him with thorns. They stuck him to a cross between two criminals, and they stuffed him into a grave and rolled a stone in front of it. They poured out the full measure of destruction upon him, and they still couldn't break him. And because we belong to Jesus, they will never break us. We might be struck down, but we will not be destroyed. Even when it seems like our lives have shattered into a million pieces, God can and will put us back together. So what it means to have this treasure is that we, the broken vessels that we are, let the glory of God shine through the cracks because it's the cracks that let the light of God's grace shine out of us. So ask yourself, friends, where is God speaking to you about your own brokenness? And more than that, how is or how can God use that brokenness to minister to someone else? Those are hard questions, but marinate on them. And remember that we have this treasure in clay jars to show that this all-surpassing power, this power that cannot be stopped or tamed is from God. And it's not from us. And that's good news. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for this treasure that we have received in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that through our brokenness, your perfect power is made manifest. And so God, where we need your grace most in those cracks in our lives and hearts, we pray that your light would shine with a light that is not able to be extinguished. We pray these things in the name of your son, our Lord and our savior. Amen. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.